listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inclusive AF podcast. This is Jackie Clayton. And this is Katie Van Horn. Uh, We are here (laughs) on the day after Election Day, so still a little stressful up in here. Not going to lie, folks. Not going to (laughs) lie. But we're going to, it's all going to come together. It's all going to be great. Um, All right. So today we have a very, fun guest, a very interesting guest. And um, it's not his cat. It's actually him that we're going to interview today. Although we are very excited. If you're watching on YouTube, you get to see his cat in the back. So, you know, just uh, an incentive if you want to watch on YouTube. <laughs> um, so Brandilyn uh, Barnett is here with us. Uh, Brandilyn, do you want to introduce yourself, share a little bit about yourself with the, the audience? Sure, happy to. And I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Brandilyn. I'm based in DC and I wear a few different hats, but largely I've spent a career in social impact and technology, um, really trying to bridge that gap and build technologies and initiatives and services that, to my mind, uh, move resources to people who need them. So that's taken a few different forms. I was one of the first product managers on a product built within Salesforce, uh, so I helped to design Uh, It was called Salesforce Philanthropy Cloud. We work with hundreds of different countries, uh, companies around the country and around the world to do their employee engagement, their giving and volunteering. I also spent time during COVID uh, leading Salesforce's uh, work.com well-being solution that was used by half the states and hundreds of different companies to ensure that people were doing well during COVID. And then I worked on Salesforce's net zero or sustainability cloud. Um, and went from there to be chief product officer for Y Combinator back company building a similar employee engagement solution. And so today I, again, wear a few hats. I'm founder of a company called The Regular based in Washington, DC, uh, that helps people find communities they wanna join and then connects those community gatherings uh, to local venues. Uh, I'm also chief product officer for a company called Humanitas.ai that's using alternative data uh, to help make more inclusive decisions around things like uh, financial decisions, hiring, um, as well as cause marketing, uh, working with large enterprises like and organizations like Mr. Beast. And finally, I'm an elected official here in DC. I'm on the board of a local organization called the Catalog for Philanthropy and a couple of others. Um, and I just try to stay busy, but that goal is always to move resources <laughs> to people who need them. Um, and I'm, and then finally, I think the reason I'm here is I told my story in my, in a memoir published, uh, last year called dreams deferred recession struggle in the quest for a better world. That talks a lot about all the different experiences I've kind of had, um, and what that has been like to kind of go through life with very few resources uh single mom grew up in dallas very poor um to try to do work that makes a difference but not be completely poor and broke um and kind of the struggles that i had there so i'm excited to be here today and uh, to talk with you both we might owe you a copay at the end of this today <laughs> i have so many questions <laughs> yeah so i, was like, I don't questions. even know what direction i want to go in i i want to go into ai direction first just because that is one that i think is so fascinating um but uh, yeah I, I think we could go in a lot of different directions so um okay first let's start with your book though 
No. So what was your, why did you write the book? Like, what was your impetus? What was the the thing that made you sit down, take the time and actually, you know, share your story? Yeah, I wrote my, I wrote Dreams Deferred for two reasons. Um, the first was that, you know, I start the book telling my story of my rock bottom, you know, walking through the streets of San Francisco, I'd gone to grad school, I'd, you know, done good work. But at that point, this is around 2000, uh, 2010, I could not find anyone to give me a job. Um, and so at some point, I'm walking around the streets of San Francisco, just trying to find a space to sleep for the night, I couldn't even afford uh, to get back to the South Bay, uh, the, the $14 for the train, I was living with my brother on his couch. And I wrote the book because my experience at that time, was hopeless. And there were times that I recount in the book where I wanted to end my life. And I was very close to doing so. My mother had passed away. No one would hire me. Uh, I wanted to do work that made a difference, but I couldn't find a job that paid more than you know, 10 or $12 an hour, even when I could find a job uh, in the nonprofit space. Um, and so I wanted anyone who's kind of going through that struggle especially as I was in the in the kind of heat of writing during COVID and feeling even more alone and kind of remembering a lot of those feelings. I thought that if one person out there reads my story and, and realizes that, that, that there's hope, that they can make it through that moment in their lives, that it's worth sharing my story. And so that was the first reason. The second reason was one of my takeaways from that time was that the world of social impact is not very inclusive. Um, I spent time as the head of research at an organization called the Council on Foundations, and it was the it is the National Association for Big Philanthropies. So I worked with organizations like the Gates Foundation um, to figure out. We did an annual survey. How much were people paid? What was the composition of staff? What were best practices? And at that time, I got to do some nationally kind of leading research with decades of survey history on how women and people of color were represented in the philanthropic space. And it became very clear to me why I had struggled to find jobs in philanthropy and social impact, because there are not a lot, there's not a lot of representation, there's not a lot of inclusion, there's not a lot of opportunity. The data on that is incredibly clear. And so what I wanted to do was share my story with people in the social impact space as well, and basically say, hey, if we've got this movement, these institutions and these organizations that claim they want to make the world a better place, why aren't they inclusive? Because how can we build something better when we don't do it together in a way that takes in feedback from all different people from all different walks of life and backgrounds? What world are we building when it's not inclusive? Uh, and so that I wanted to kind of challenge the social impact space to think about inclusion uh, in a way that I think too often doesn't happen. I love that you say that because so often, <clears throat> excuse me, what I found is that, especially if the organization isn't inclusive, they're answering questions that weren't asked. Like they're not asking the yeah. questions of the right people oftentimes and make like sitting in a room, it's really that confirmation bias of let's all, you know, make, oh, I have an idea. And you're trying to provide a need without making the assessment of how we, how we, got there. I think yeah. that was one of the, um, I've done some work with non nonprofits, not for social impact, but just found that to be the case. Did you, what were some of the answers that you found out as to why, or did you find anything that you felt made a little sense as you were looking for the answers to those? 
Yeah, where I've settled is that, I mean, first, I agree with you completely. And I think about, and it's so obvious to me, I think about my experience building products. So I've been a product manager with, with major tech companies, smaller startups, and no matter the organization, no matter what you're trying to build, the first and most important thing that you need to do is listen. So you go into a room with a group of potential customers or a group of existing customers, and you ask them what problems are they facing? What are their pain points? And you use that to derive a solution that can make their lives easier that they might be willing to pay for. That's what a product manager does. Then you figure out how to tell the story of it, et cetera. I think that so often that doesn't happen in the social impact space. That doesn't happen in philanthropy. And it doesn't even happen with a lot of government, governmental and multilateral institutions who just go in and, and kind of decide what the priorities are before having that conversation. And when I think about a solution, there are a lot of things that need to happen. The first is that there aren't even enough people, is, is just inclusion in and of itself. So mm-hmm. philanthropy and social impact talk to themselves a lot. Yeah, you have a conference and you know a lot of folks will go and they work in big foundations or small foundations, they're talking to each other and that's great but then you go into the community. So here in DC, for example, I was for a time a mentor at Thurgood Marshall Academy, uh, which is in DC's uh, Ward 8 in Anacostia, predominantly African-American part of town. Um, Kids a lot like me and how I grew up. I know for a fact that that mentor program at that high school is being funded by foundations here in the DC area. Why is it then that when I talk to the student I was mentoring or other students, their friends or their parents, they don't even know what those foundations are or that they exist? Yeah. That line of communication between the people being served and the people providing funding is not strong. And I think it needs to be stronger. And once that, so I think that's one of the pieces that I always say needs to change. Once that change occurs, I then think that you can begin to inspire people to want to work for the kinds of organizations that change their lives. Um, That's kind of how I got on this career. My mother and I were helped so many times by different organizations, and I wanted to do for others what had been done for me. I didn't want to just be helped. I wanted to help. And so that begins to create a pipeline of people who want to have careers in the space, um, as opposed to now millions of people who don't even know that options exist to work at a foundation. Uh, So those are that, that kind of awareness at a broader scale, I think would help a lot. Beyond that, I think transparency is the root of a lot of the issues in the sense of, I think back to a job that I had that I I don't need to be specific about, but we, there was a, we were still going to work in person. It was, this was before COVID and there's a water cooler effect where the CEO would come in and she would, you know, have her coffee in the kitchen and talk to the folks she enjoyed talking to in the kitchen. And those folks happen to look like her. And that is not a transparent situation because she might end up saying, oh, there's an opportunity in the company to do X. There's a, there's a new job that we're gonna be opening. And those things are just happening in the normal course of conversation, but because it's not transparent to the entire organization, other people end up missing out on opportunities they might otherwise see. And that's kind of a microcosm, I think, of what leads to a lot of uninclusive practices in the social impact space, but also more broadly, <clears throat> just this idea of, does everyone know about all the opportunities that are available equally um, and what it might take to get there and what kind of salary it might even pay, even that kind of transparency. I 
you know, growing up as a kid, the idea of making $50,000 kind of blew my mind. Like that was far and away more than anybody in my family could imagine making. And then I started learning about careers in tech and other things just through contacts with other people. And I'm like, wow, I have the bar was set so low for me from the beginning. Now I have something to aim for. And I knew about careers in the social impact space. And so while it was a difficult journey, you know, all the elements that I'm talking about kind of cascade into a scenario where you, you create a more inclusive world. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that might be a little rambly, but hopefully just a little context into how I think about these issues, at least, but you know, not to pretend that they're easy issues to solve. No, but I, I think it's so important. Um, a moment, you know, we all have those moments that have changed our life or something, the way we think about something um, can be so simple. And I'll never forget, we were trying to solve the problem of food deserts in Waco, and they had a lot of um, people that came to a groundwater, it's an organization that teaches about groundwater, and we were all sitting there and they were talking about building these farms and building these urban farms. And this woman said, have you ever had broccoli? You ever smelled broccoli before when you make it in the microwave? It's like, what does it smell like? It's like broccoli. It's like, okay. Can you imagine if you've never smelled broccoli before and then someone told you you had to eat it? So who's going to use the broccoli on this farm? Who's going to eat that? And it was like, no. mind blowing. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, yeah. and finally, one person who had been too afraid to speak up said, I didn't have fresh vegetables until I was 25 years old. I thought vegetables came in a can. And then it was like, wait, we're solving the wrong problem. And I, and I think that's what happens um, so often. And it's, I think it's really telling my family is from the Baltimore area. And I think that it happens a lot where you see people wanting to help and an offer, but not wanting the sense of community or not wanting to invest personally in the community that they are serving um, in a way so that they can answer the real or try to solve the real problem or look at it from a 360 view. I'm the example you use is, is so funny because I have I tell the same story is very similar. I was in Dallas and there was a small organization I was working with and they were trying to think about issues of nutrition in Southern Dallas, which is the more kind of underprivileged part of the city. Um, let's be real. Parts of it look like war zone. Yes. Um, and so I, me and a, there were, there were three people of color as part of this group. I was one, there was uh, two other ladies. We weren't able to attend two of the meetings. So we come back after missing a couple of meetings and everyone's really excited. Uh, all, you know, white folks, no offense to anybody, but they're excited about this fresh, fresh vegetables program that they're gonna do. And I'm sitting there like, my single mom would not, these, these fresh veggies are gonna go bad so quickly and like the nutritional value of these fresh veggies versus frozen veggies, the data is pretty clear, mm -hmm. it's not that different. So why are you doing this? Who who told you that this is a good idea? And it really does go back to this, this idea of why, when you build something, you need to listen to the people you're building that solution for. And too often that doesn't happen. And just to go off on a little, this has kind of been a little passion of mine 
that I kind of indulge in my political work here in DC, but also in, in my volunteering, is this idea that corporate America hasn't distilled or rather passed down its techniques in a way that it did in previous generations. So when you think about the assembly line, it was used by Ford Motor Company and other big corporations to improve the means of production and make their factories more efficient, et cetera. But over time, we use the assembly line for a variety. It's, we, we see it at soup kitchens. We see it when we uh, do volunteer efforts to ship out uh, clothing or materials to people in need. The assembly line became a part of broader culture and those techniques that drove efficiency in business also made the world better in a million little ways. Now, when you think about big tech, a lot of the techniques I use as a product manager, for example, to go out and learn from millions of users uh, in real time about what they're thinking, what problems they're facing, what they might like to see as solutions. For some reason, we have not taken those techniques and applied them to everyday life. And even if you think about our democracy, you know, it's the day after election day, the whole idea that like you have local elected officials with maybe a hundred thousand constituents or even a million constituents, and they can only learn what those constituents think one day every four years or every two years or whatever their term may be. That's absurd. When I'm sitting here looking at platforms at Salesforce or Facebook or Meta or whatever other company, and they're getting real time feedback from people and communities on a daily basis to drive solutions that they're building that yes, in many cases, especially if you think about certain organizations in the social media landscape are making the world worse, but they're building for purpose. They know what those solutions are gonna be used for and they're gathering real-time feedback. And we need to start utilizing those same tools and techniques in every part of our life so that we can learn and learn from and listen to each other. Um, so that's be, that's been kind of a little, just a thing on my mind for a long time that I've thought about how can I make this better? But it is just so true. It happens far too often that there's just not good listening. I think that that, you know, that's something that we, it, like pretty much every guest that we have had on, that's one of the the major themes is, you know, who is listening? What are they, and, and across the board. And, you know, it's, you're talking and it's reminding me, and I don't know if you have uh, read the Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva, like. I know like, Edgar well. He, uh, okay, he, great, uh, like, great book. And he, I've heard him speak now a few times and, and it's fascinating because it's that same concept of if the people in power in these philanthropic, you know, philanthropic groups or in these nonprofits don't actually know what's going on or have the lived experience or are listening to the communities that they're helping uh you know how can that just completely twist the actual what what is needed versus what is delivered you know and it's the what's the analogy of like you know hey giving people shoes you know when they don't actually need shoes they, they need, need socks shoes. or something you know like no. there's so many different analogies and i think you know that whole concept of who's actually doing the listening to so I've worked with a few uh, a few a few nonprofits here in town, and one of the things that we talk about is like the board, like who is on your board, and do you have folks from the communities that you're trying to support and grow, so they can inform on some of these things of 
hey, yeah, if you give fresh vegetables, that's not going to be great. But frozen vegetables would absolutely be helpful. And that listening piece is just something that I, I think gets dismissed so much because there is that savior. Oh, we know the answers. We're going to give you what you need, even if it's not what you need. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission, that through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Yeah. Um, it happens a lot in the environmental space too. And that's, you know, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, COP27, I think is underway uh, or just wrapped up last week. I'm not, the, I've honestly found it hard to follow the news. I just, it gets depressing sometimes. But just this idea, think about recycling, for example. Oh, it's this really great thing. A lot of the things that people were recycling were just getting end up, ended up getting dumped in communities of color. So you know, what were you really doing? Um, but anyway, I do think it's a core problem. And this, and I don't know, the world is so polarized. Maybe we don't want to listen to each other. Who, who knows? But I'm feeling perhaps more cynical today than, than some other. <laughs> I think, I think we're all kind of feeling that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, again, it's a rough day. Uh, can we switch over to AI? Because I just I want to hear some of your thoughts on. So I, I coded bias, you know, the movie coded bias uh, that that joy and I can never say her last name correctly. So I don't want to butcher it. Um, so what are your thoughts on kind of the use of AI in technology and kind of in in these spaces that we're trying to improve and, and how that impacts marginalized and underserved groups? Like just yeah. would love your thoughts. Yeah. I take a lot of my cues there from the founder of Humanitas. Uh, if anyone's interested, it's humanitas.ai. Um, you're welcome to go check out the solution currently. Um, building out a means of collecting alternative data sources, much of it from nonprofits, and feeding that into uh, machine learning tools used by larger institutions. But I think the truth of the matter is, and when you hear Phil, Phil speak, uh, the CEO and founder, he'll talk about how the current picture that the internet provides of people is incomplete. And where it is complete, it's biased to be complete for uh, certain cohorts of people versus and, and not for others. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that when you're being considered for a mortgage or when you're being evaluated for hiring or when it, even when a system is deciding which nonprofit to show to a donor, say, when they're checking out at the grocery store. Uh, because that picture that the internet paints is incomplete and becoming more incomplete by the day, because think of where all that data is coming from. It's coming from e-commerce tools. Well, you have to have the money to go use those tools. It's painting pictures and models being built on data used by Facebook and other systems. Well, if you don't have the internet or reliable internet access, just as an example, that's not painting a picture of you and of your life. And so what 
needs to happen is some kind of systematic way of bringing in alternative data sources, cleaning them up, making sure they're valid, and then piping them in wherever they need to do, wherever they need to be. It's almost like we need a new infrastructure for the internet. So that's what we're working on at, with Humanitas um, in conversations with some large brands to do everything from have the, the small local charity, perhaps run by a person of color, show up when you're checking out at a major grocery chain and have it not just be uh, Feeding America or Save the Children. Great organizations, but there are small nonprofits right down the street that may actually increase the likelihood that someone's going to donate because it's in their community and people do like local. Um, or if we can use nonprofit data to say, actually, there's a you know, the services that are being provided in this community make it more likely that someone's going to be able uh, to pay a loan back and then passing that information to a big bank so that they can update their model, paint a more clear picture and not deny people of color who can pay back that mortgage or who can pay back that loan that might help them jumpstart their dreams in their business. Uh, but all of that is possible when you have a different infrastructure for the internet and a wider variety of data sources. And so it's been really exciting to work on that problem with the Humanitas team. And I love that you're doing that. It's kind of the challenge. Um, I always say, uh, I won't tell you my exact age, but I'm a Gen Xer. Mm. And when I started going, getting into talent acquisition, we used to re recruit very differently. We were looking for people where the job that we had was their next opportunity. And now when you see with the flood of um, ML and AI, especially in some of these HR tech tools, at best, you can find somebody that's only like two years burnt out. Um, at worst, you're hiring somebody who's been doing the exact same job and literally you're expect you have no expectations outside of what you read for them at your current job. You're hiring mm -hmm. them to do the same thing um, because that's the data set you're using is like like that's a, a prime example because I've explained to others the underrepresented person and that literally and i mean that sometimes you know if it's black i say black if it's brown i say brown but it literally underrepresented might have a different journey and i was thinking about it the other day as we were looking for a um a director of communications mm -hmm. and i was like don't look for other directors communications i was like look for people who have the work like we have to look at it differently like what if this you know there's the rules it wasn't set up for people that are underrepresented, the systems that we see in place. And then you have to have that understanding of what the, the those situations look like. I mean, I just, you know, again, like I said, I'm in a mood today because of, of what's going on. But I also feel like we have, like language we always say is the operating system of inclusion. Mm. Um, and it's so important that we can can get the right people in the room because you're right there's a lot of access you just kind of sparked an idea i mean you know it's like we have technology that we can use oh you know right right you know a phone call away a slack message away yeah. Yeah. um of making sure that those things are happening and because sometimes people will donate that technology right yeah. but then they donate it to a group that doesn't know how to utilize it outside of like oh, we'll do a survey at the end of this event. And it's like, wait, that's not, that's the survey, the people that we just met. No, we want more than that. We're trying to change lives. And I think we have to get 
more intentional with what we're trying to do, especially at these nonprofits of what the actual goal is and and give people opportunities to make very specific changes. I just see so many that are trying to do every be all things for all for all people and it no. gets messy and things don't get done. Yeah, and you know, where to begin? I think the problem of how to use technology to better the world is one of the biggest problems of that we're going to face this century. There were a lot of companies between 2000 and today that said they were doing that. You know, you've got Google, you've got now Meta or Facebook, you've got Twitter, which was the what the town square. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of people, a lot of organizations just don't know how to effectively use technology in positive ways. And we're not exactly teaching people. Um, you know, I remember I remember when I got to college, I took a communications class and they, you know, part of what we learned, I was probably a sophomore in college. I went to the University of Pittsburgh and they were telling us that, oh, you've got to be careful about what you read or, you know, where you hear a recommendation of a book because a lot because of mergers and acquisitions, you might be watching ABC and they're talking about a book. Well, they also own the publishing company. And that's just the kind of thing that we should really be teaching people when they're like five years old. We should be teaching people about all the different tools and technologies they can use when they're very young so that we began to make that just a part of how we go about our lives in society and, and so that we all understand the tools available and the harms that they can do as well as the ways that they can help us. Instead, I think we've gone in the opposite direction. You've got people in the Senate asking, you know, asking the most ridiculous questions to people that work in technology or any new space. And the example set is that none of this matters, but in fact, it's tr rapidly transforming the world around us in ways that we aren't really equipped as a society uh, to think through fully. Um, and so I think that is unfortunate. I, I, I also, I'm sorry, I got very distracted. I noticed you have a Houston Tillerson and my mom went there, so. <laughs> son tj is there and my oldest graduated from there my brother's a uh um houston tillotson graduate so go rams we'll just throw go that rams. in there <laughs> <laughs> don't meet a lot of folks from from houston tillotson up here in dc but it, it won yes. my, my family's were like morgan that my family went to morgan my my sister went to howard um and then my grandparents went to coppin a teacher's okay. college so long and so that part of the world and you know it's funny how it is and i i tell everyone regardless of your background you really should go to an hbcu the change in my children where they can get the work done and see these changes and make a difference this is a prime example of what you're talking about so um where like there's the student commission for the city of Austin. And my son's on the student commission and I was really missing him one day. So I was like, I'm gonna pop in and listen to the live broadcast. It was during COVID. And I was like, they're calling him like commissioner Clayton and he's on the transportation commission along with people from UT and people from Austin Community College. And 
the things that they were able to learn. But then you look at the history, it hasn't been that long where they invited and treated everybody equally from the various universities and having these people collaborate is, is driving real change. Um, yeah. And the fact, cause I was like, you ain't no commissioner. He's like, no, really, I am. I have an email address to the to this to the city. Like, I'm a part of this, yeah. and it's been life changing for him, but also for the city of getting the right voices in there, of trying to make change. And I just wish everybody had that, you know, had that in mind. Sorry, we're going off on a tangent, but oh, no. I just think it's. I feel like it's so relevant. Um, and I think we're going to see an increase as we're starting to educate ourselves about what's really happening. I think we'll see an increase in enrollees at HBCUs. I think we're starting to see the change on television of that representation because a lot of the times we aren't like, we wanna be able to solve all these issues and look at, we need more hands in some of these scenarios and you're realizing you're working on these causes, but the, the benefit isn't necessarily for me or mm -hmm. for a larger group or within that community. Um, so I must ask, since your mom was an alum, how did you end up in Pittsburgh? That is that is far from Texas. <laughs> so I started applying <laughs> to schools and it just I always had this fascination with the East Coast and I love winter. I love, uh, I hadn't experienced it a lot, but I love snow. I still do. Uh, I like, I wanted to go somewhere with seasons. And so I was deciding between, uh, I had an opportunity to go to UT Dallas for a year and then do the UT thing, uh, which literally everyone did. Um, or I could go to the University of Pittsburgh and I forget what other option I had, maybe Davidson or something. Um, and what sealed the deal for me was I got up one morning, one summer in Texas, I uh, was living with my, my mom and I had lost our home. We were living with an aunt in the colony, Texas. Um, and so I get up in the morning, it's probably 6 a.m. thinking I'm going to go beat the heat, play some basketball. You know, I'm deciding which school to go to. I'm done with high school. Uh, walked out. It was already 104 degrees or something at six in the morning. And I said, you know what? I'm going to <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was decision made <laughs> and i haven't looked back since i did go back to dallas for a bit after uh undergrad and before grad school um but i i love the east coast and i also love dc um i love that you know growing up there were not there was not a lot of opportunity for me to see uh role models who are people of color so you know there were amazing people in my life but compared to here in dc where you've got uh, appointed and elected officials you know the mayor much of the city council many of the major nonprofit organizations run by people of color and i love that there's that culture and history uh here in dc and more broadly on the east coast i just feel like there's more of that and i like having that um, I also like the diversity in that it's, there's so many people from every country in the world here in DC for uh, to engage in political issues and advocacy. And then just a few hours away, you're in New York and there's people from all over the planet there to enjoy the city 
there for finance, to transact, to uh, meet people, to find community, to chase their dreams. And I just think the East Coast just has so much of that and it, it invigorates me. Uh, if I'm alone too much, I'm in my head and that's not always the best place to be. So uh, that's, I just had, I was drawn to the East Coast and Pittsburgh was the bridge, but Pittsburgh's a beautiful and amazing city. So I uh, really loved my time there. I love that. That's a, a great story. And yeah, 104. Yeah, I can see that that day would have been We're familiar. Yeah. We're yeah. familiar with these temperatures. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Very relevant. So critical thinking, you know, like what you're talking about is just, you know, the the whole idea of getting people to think critically and how do we start to get that more into schools? Because I think, you know, as all of us, especially like in the political climate right now, I think it is that can you just stop and stop listening to this one channel and and go ask some questions and go do your own research and and have that critical thinking piece how do we get people to do that more like i i think the fundamental course that everyone needs to take that we need to teach in you know multiple grades of school is research and that includes quantitative research, so going in and being able to look at and analyze data sets, but also qualitative research, knowing that if you're building a product and you hope to have 30 B2B customers, just to give you an example, because right now with the regular, we're building B2B solutions uh, for local bars and restaurants. If we know we want to have 120 customers uh, in DC in year one of operation, I need to be able to get into the room with between 10 and 20 and really dig in on and find a problem that, that we can address that fits our business model uh, and understand how our solution and just have conversations and do that kind of qualitative research. What's your problem? Hey, what if we did this? How much would you pay for that? Or what would you think about that? And just having those kinds of honest conversations and then being able to synthesize both that qualitative research and whatever quantitative research you can do um, and draw from, as well as whatever meta study you can do, whatever research you're able to do outside of that, uh, or take advantage of work that others have done uh, to learn, we need to be teaching those kinds of standard, truly standard now in the modern uh, business landscape, research techniques to every person in this country. And the fact that we're not is really terrifying, because to be quite honest, with there is just there are so many decisions that need to be made and there's so much data that we all have to sort through that we don't even know how to sort through. I mean, it's actually completely unfair in the current landscape to expect people to genuinely and authentically engage and participate when we haven't given them the tools to do so effectively, to analyze data, to do research. That shouldn't be, you know, I think I was reading that one of the fastest growing jobs is data scientists. And it shouldn't just be people with the title of data scientists who are able to do that. That kind of skill set is kind of essential just for functioning in modern society. And we're, we haven't caught up. Just to order a freaking pizza, like yeah. from your hotel room, wherever you visit. That's, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think the thing that I'm most frustrated is that we don't teach applied math or applied science and so yeah. people don't know what that looks like out there um i remember my so my oldest um was a math major and i felt really guilty we were going to six flags and i felt really bad because it was like a misty day and it was before school was let out and there was like 
I don't know, a hundred people there. And there should have been like thousands. And I was like, oh, I feel so bad. They're not going to make any money. And then Clay said, actually, they've already figured it out, mom. You do not have to feel bad. Like they have already worked in this rainy day into the format after they learned it. I was like, what else do you know? And we were talking about how to calculate the, like the wind and all of these different things. And they, they love math and they were so excited, but it, it started with showing them all the things that are math that you're not, that you don't know what is math. And it's the same thing I think with data, like, like telling somebody, oh, you should study research may be boring, but it's like your yeah. favorite band's in town and there's a coupon what do you do? Like you only have a hundred bucks. If you can get a coupon and you can get two tickets or you can buy one ticket. Like what do you, what do you do online to do that? Because there's no. so many resources, but also allow people to say when you don't find it, you can create it. There's more world as big and vast as the internet and interwebs are. Maybe it's not there yet. Maybe mm -hmm. it's you that have to come up with the solution. Maybe it's not, Googleable. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. Yeah. And what you're really talking about is an opportunity to unlock innovation. And that's, you know, that's kind of what we dance around a lot is, you know, the techniques that we're talking about, the things that we're talking about, identifying problems, identifying solutions, that's something that we kind of laud certain people for and it tends to be a certain kind of person uh to be quite frank a uh, white guy in a hoodie in silicon valley if we taught these techniques to every entrepreneur every small business owner every person imagine what we could do as a society you're kind of talking about unlocking our potential to solve problems and innovate and not just holding that as a kind of limited resource among an elite kind of strata of people. And I think, why wouldn't we want to do that? I talk a lot in my book about Star Trek <laughs> because it, it is it, the, specifically Captain Picard, the next generation, all of that has inspired me so much. And that's literally that model, you know, that world that we can not necessarily try to try to copy or emulate or build, but that we can take inspiration from. And at the core of it is everyone is educated, supported, fed, they have a place to live. And once that happens, wow, then you can unlock, you can give people the tools to figure out different problems, follow their passions and solve those problems and find solutions. And some of them are gonna change the world. Some of them are gonna change individual people's lives and perceptions in a way that leads them to change the world through art or music. And I think, that's the world that we should be trying to create and instead we're fighting over whether you know we should forgive student loans oh. and it's like we need to decide kind of we're at a very crucial point i think as a society where we have to decide kind of what are we trying to do are we trying to make money 
Or are we trying to make the world better so that more and more people have opportunity, have food? And then what happens when they do? We can unlock their creative genius in a million different ways, but we have to give people the tools that they need and the resources that they need. And <clears throat> I try to do as much of that as I can. That's why I'm compelled to wear so many different hats. Um, but it's it's a tough job and, and we're doing, unfortunately, you're kind of swimming against the tide, uh, to be frank, if, if you even try uh, to think about the world in that way. I, I think you're right, but there are those those questions. I, I was just talking to the language team. I thought this was fascinating. So I work for a company that creates tools to help build, um, bring people together through language. And so the, like the person who was doing NLP work said, we're looking on an accommodation statement. Um, so what would be the right, like what's required in an accommodation statement? And I said, oh, it's not required. And she looked at me and said, it's not, I was like, uh-uh. You could just put, we follow EEOC rules. So it, it puts it in there, but you don't, there's no language that you have to use. No. And she said, well, we, we still want to have an accommodation statement. And I said, well, before I answer, are you trying to be compliant or are you trying to save the world? Because if you're trying to be compliant, let's just shut this down. The answer is you don't have to have one. So it's like, no, we want to know more. And then I was telling them, I was like, oh yes, PS. Let's talk about the challenges that people with disabilities face. Let's talk about not being paid a fair wage. It's legal. Let's talk about all of those things. And it goes to your, it, it touches on exactly what you're talking about. Like, number one, that is a Googleable answer. Number two, you haven't surrounded yourself with the people to get some of these answers where we're looking, we have to look at it. Do you want to make money? Or are we trying to make the world better? And I think in some situations, the history has, they've been so used to helping people make money through this wizardry of technology that they forget that people have been giving me the questions to ask instead of me using my critical thinking. And I think it's a nice combination of, of people, again, of bringing those people together. Because I mean, for me, coding would be my own personal hell. Like I, I, I look at it, I start having a panic. I'm like, what's happening? There's dots, there's dashes. I really can't do it. Well, and I think it's also just adding to that layer. Why does it have to be either or? Why can't right. it be both that you make money and and save the world? And and you, the right you can. Business? You know that's what I mean? Right. Like, I think that's part of it as well. And I think that's, you know, where I am seeing people trying to move. It just is, it is a heavy, heavy lift. Why, like, why do teachers have to take a vow of poverty? Right. Yes. Or work that people who work in nonprofits. Yeah. Right. And like social work. Yep. I that call it impact anywhere. Yeah. Yep. I call that impact anywhere. And I really, like I mentioned, I want to challenge the social impact space to say that the way you have an impact, you don't have to work at a foundation. You don't have to work at a nonprofit. You can have an impact anywhere in any job that you're doing. Let's say you're at a large company. There are people who need a voice within that organization so that they can achieve the kind of transparency that leads to inclusion and leads to opportunity for all. 
a lot of companies have started up groups that are called typically employee resource groups or business resource groups. You can volunteer in your role to help lead those, lead one of those internal organizations, and you can trans help to transform your workplace culture in a way that helps other people to live more full lives, to have their well-being respected, to find new opportunities. That impact is tremendous. And you don't have to be at a nonprofit or foundation to do that. And I think that's the core message of Dreams Deferred that you and something I learned trying so hard. I spent a decade trying to get work in a nonprofit. That was my dream. Doing NGO work, something along those lines that helped us to move closer to a better world and help the world to be a better place. And all the while, I watched my mom die. I had no health insurance. I couldn't help her. I'm taking her around a doctor. I could do nothing for her. I had no money. And I you know, ended up almost homeless on the streets of San Francisco. I so many times I had to get people to help me to go to college or to go to grad school. And I'm when I first I went to grad school in London because I got into my dream school, University of London, I got there and I had no money. I had to borrow from friends to live in a hostel um, for three months. And then I found a room in a house with six other people at the top of a bunk bed. And I was doing all that to get an education and make my life better. But it didn't, you know, the social impact work I had done before that and did after couldn't even pay the student loans that I have, that I got to, you know, pursue those opportunities. And it's like, it's it's not, it, it, it again, it, I just keep coming back to what's the point of all of this, right? What's the point of the society that we're building? Is it really just to make some people some money? Uh, because if it's not, then we need to think about higher purpose and we need to not restrict that higher purpose to certain careers and and certain people it needs to be something that can happen anywhere and so i call that impact anywhere it's i'm trying to start a series around it of conversations i have with people who are trying to have an impact in tech in art in finance um and just thinking about the impact of their actions and the work that they can do and that they are doing on the world around them that needs to be a mindset that we all adopt. One million percent. And I think, you know, you mentioned ERGs, BRGs. And I think one of the pieces that I am very passionate about, I know Jackie is as well, is it doesn't have to be a volunteer position either. If in your organization, you're asking folks to do this work, which is a heavy lift, they should be compensated for that work as well. And so I think it's, it's again, it's continuing this conversation like, you know, the vow of poverty that teachers are taking constantly and you know having to come out of pocket on so many things why is that where we are as a society versus the opposite and you know actually taking care of folks who are doing this work to make organizations better to make the world better and you know how do we shift that narrative but whose idea was it to have randall in, in the morning I know I was I have 4,000 other topics I want to and he, I was I, again I was like why, why we gonna have to have Brandilyn back yes I need I'll you to come to text yet yeah. listen I just have a whole dossier for you I have a whole itinerary I'm not coming in the summer it. I'll tell you that <laughs> no, yeah, hey, yeah well I'll just say as soon as it snows uh in in uh DC you can come out to Arizona yeah. and and Jackie will come out and we'll have a whole situation so it'll a be a party yeah yeah whole party all right well uh 
the you know the last question we like to ask is really around you know what is one thing that you want folks to i'm gonna switch it just for you jackie Thank you. uh that you want them to have heard during this episode or is one message that you want people to just be aware of as they're moving about their day uh, i'd Did say that right jackie that was good that was good okay sorry thank you no of course I, i'd say it's that message from my book um, and so I, maybe I'm, you know, breaking the rules with your question, but it, it's kind of two interrelated pieces. Um, the first is, and, you know, a lot of the stories I recount in my book are things I experienced during the 08 recession, the Great Recession. And, you know, we all went through COVID and that was terrible. And I thought, you know, I'd finished the book during COVID and people could read it as they were going through all of that. And now look, we're out of COVID for, in many ways. And here we are back again with a potential recession looming and that hundreds of thousands of people getting laid off across different sectors. And I would just encourage everybody to just remember that there's hope. Like when you're feeling down, my story is just one, but there are many other people who are there for you. If you wanna talk, you can reach out to me, but just know that there's hope. All it takes is one person to say yes in a job interview. You don't, don't, don't worry about all the people that say no. All it takes is just one. It's just remember that there's hope. And then as you, you know, keep that message in mind and, and go forward in your life, the big takeaway for me is don't just don't don't think that you have to compromise. You can have impact in whatever job you do and whatever thing you do, you can have impact anywhere. And remember that and kind of adapt that as your mindset. Um, and doing that together on mass as a people. I think is what's going to make the world a better place. It's not people donating money. It's not people volunteering. It's everyone thinking about how they can make an impact in everything they do. It's a mindset. And I think that would be the main takeaway. Just ask yourself in your current job or uh, in your current life, what can you do to make an impact? And there's something and doing so my guess is and what i've experienced as well is that's going to help you and your career and your family and, you, and your community as well um it's going to pay big dividends uh in a variety of different ways so i think those are the things that i i would leave people with well i think especially right now as we are facing a possible recession again your yeah. book it is you know one of those books that like read it now as as we continue down this path and hopefully don't go down that path too far but how can your book and how can the you know impact question really change the way people approach whatever comes next uh jackie what you got I want people to take away that um i like that there's hope but also that you're not alone I think sometimes like at night in the quiet corners, <laughs> you can feel alone, but knowing that you are out there and there's other people out there that can, that is the hope that I'm taking this morning, the day after the election, that it was interesting as we look at the at some of the results. So, some of us do think differently, but there's there are, are people that, I can align with and help share those messages for everyone. And Lord knows it can start right here at home in, in Waco, Texas. And we just can just keep expanding. Um, and also that as you're looking for the person to lead a various cause, remember it could be you. You could be the one yeah. that needs to lead that charge. 
Mm-hmm. You're on mute, boo-boo. Sorry, I just take pen in. Um, the idea of critical thinking and taking in, you know, the data that there is so much data, and I love that you point that out. The amount of data that we are taking in on a daily basis, how do we, you know, take out the fluff or the unnecessary and and really focus on the key information and do that critical thinking to say what else why 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 and keep asking those questions like i think that's something that we all need to take as a to do um especially just it, again back to in current times like it, knowing that some of these things like why is this set up this certain way why do we have situations where the most important roles are underfunded why why just why mm -hmm. <laughs> just tell me why <laughs> sorry um well brandalyn thank you we are definitely going to have a part two um uh, just because yeah i i was creating a list before we started and i got to two of them so that works out there's only like 17 more so it's going to be happy great. to come back i very much enjoyed the conversation awesome well thank you for taking the time yes, thank uh, you this is katie van horn and this is Jackie Clayton. Bye. Bye, -bye. <laughs>